Amen. So we started a series on Easter Sunday. It's going to take us through the end of May. Uh, We're calling it Everything Has Changed because if Christ has truly been raised from the dead, well, then everything has changed. Like central to our faith is a historic event, the resurrection of the crucified Christ. It either happened or it didn't. But it is the key to our faith. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus appeared to over 500 people over a period of 40 days between that first Easter Sunday and his ascension. If he is risen, then everything has changed. But listen to this. This is from John chapter 21. It says, later, Jesus appeared again to his disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. Several of his disciples were there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples. Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. Okay, if you were here last week, last week we read from John chapter 20, one chapter earlier. In John 20, the resurrected Christ appears to his disciples when they are locked away in an upper room, terrified. He appears in that room, he breathes on them the Holy Spirit, he empowers them to go to unlock that door, to leave the safety of the upper room behind and get to work. He unleashed them on an unsuspecting world. He sent them out to stand in opposition, not to people, but to stand in opposition to evil itself, to what was oppressing the people. He sends them out to bring forgiveness and mercy and grace and hope to all God's children all around the world. He sends them out to be fishers of men, to bring God's people home. But listen again to verse three. After all that, Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. (laughs) The rest of them said what? We'll come too. (laughs) Everything has changed. (laughs) Right? Like after the drama of chapter 20, the very next chapter we find Jesus' disciples doing exactly what they did before he first called them three years earlier. They went right back to their old lives. Christ is risen from the grave, but they go back to Galilee to catch some fish. Look, everything has changed, but apparently, like, it's not that simple. It takes a little time. Jesus' disciples can be a little slow to get on board, still reluctant to truly follow Jesus. Does that feel at all familiar to you? Me too. Let's keep reading. Verse three again. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When it was already very early in the morning, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you don't have any fish, do you? And they replied, no. So he told them, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they threw the net, but they were not able to pull it in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. So Simon Peter, when he heard that it was the Lord, he tucked in his outer garment for he had nothing on underneath it. He plunged into the sea. Meanwhile, the other disciples came with the boat 
dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about 100 yards. And when they got out on the beach, they saw a charcoal, fi- a charcoal fire ready with fish placed on it and bread. All right, so we're gonna read a few more verses. Quick spoiler alert, this entire chapter, it's all about Peter. All right, Peter is representative here, and there's a pattern that we have seen since chapter 20. Like, like actually, this is the pattern we've seen throughout the whole gospel. Peter is quick to draw near to Jesus. And then as soon as he does, he runs away. Like we saw that uh, in the garden and at Jesus's crucifixion. But we even saw it after the resurrection. Peter goes to Jesus, he goes to the empty tomb, but then he runs away when he sees that it's empty and he hides with the others in an upper room. Peter saw the wounds of the glorified physical body of the resurrected Christ in that room, but then the next day he's right back to his old life, fishing. Peter sees Jesus on the beach and he frantically rushes out to be with him, but when he gets to the beach, the story skips to the moment when all the others arrive too. It's like he gets to Jesus, but then nothing happens. Like Peter's always drawing near and then pushing away. He's like a human pendulum. Like, he just can't quite find his peace in the center with Jesus. As soon as he gets to him, he just swings right by in the other direction. Does that feel familiar to you? (laughs) Me too. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. When they got out on the beach, they saw a charcoal fire ready with fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said, bring some of the fish you have just now caught. So Simon Peter went aboard pulled the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But although there were so many, the net was not torn. Come have breakfast, Jesus said. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. All right, when Jesus first called his disciples, he told them he would transform fishermen into fishers of men, right? And as we've already seen, when he comes to see them again after the resurrection, they're fishermen again. And they're not only fishing for the wrong thing, the story says they're fishing from the wrong side of the boat, right? So Jesus comes, no condemnation. He just tells them to cast out on the right side of the boat. Like he meets them right where they are. He speaks. And when he does, the disciples bring in this massive load of fish, enough fish to feed the entire town. Like even after the resurrection, it's another teaching moment. If you'll trust me, like if you'll do it the way I taught you to do it, you're gonna catch more than you can even imagine. But did you notice that that when they got to the beach, did you notice what was already cooking on the fire? Yeah, Jesus already had his own fish. Like behind the scenes, Jesus had already done the work himself. He even had time to start a fire and prepare a meal so that he could feed them after a long night on the lake. Now listen, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's deeply true and it's really, really sweet, so it's worth the time. Like Jesus sends us out to do really important work, to be his witnesses, sent into the world just as the Father sent him. But if we just go back to our old lives, If we go on living as if nothing has changed, man, I'm almost hesitant to tell you this. (laughs) If we go back to life as it was, if we do nothing, 
Y'all, the work is still gonna get done. And listen, this is really important. I don't want you to misunderstand, so hang with me for a second. Jesus is not weak and ineffective without us. His kingdom will come. The work will be done. The question is, will you be a part of it or not? Like you have been given power and authority to be his witness, like we said last week, to be vehicles for forgiveness and mercy and grace to a world that desperately needs it. But the coming kingdom is not dependent on my work. It's not dependent on your work. It's dependent on his. He is the sovereign Lord. We are his workers. N.T. Wright says it really well. He says it like this. He says, how dreadfully easy it is for Christian workers to get the impression that we've got to do it all. God, we imagine, is waiting passively for us to get on with things. If we don't organize, it won't happen. If we don't change the world, it won't be changed. He has no hands but our hands, we are sometimes told. And listen, if I have ever said that, like I repent and ask forgiveness because I was wrong. N.T. Wright is right, and he goes on to say this. He says, what a load of rubbish. (laughs) He's British. (laughs) He says, if it's God's work we're doing, we must do it with all of our might. But let's have no nonsense about it all being up to us, as if poor old Jesus is unable to lift a finger unless we lift it for him. That's an important word. He is the sovereign Lord, we are the workers. This does not minimize the importance of our work. It simply puts it into context. You see, Jesus already has fish on the fire, but he tells him to do what? To bring yours too. Bring what you've caught. Y'all listen, isn't this how a family works? Like Emily on staff, she sent me a note, she reminded me of this. Like I don't need my kids to put away the dishes or to mow the lawn. To be honest with you, they usually do it wrong. (laughs) Like, they slow things down. Sometimes they even make things harder. But like, when we are willing to slow down and let things get a little messy, like then we can do that work together. We can share the joy of experiencing that stuff with our kids, even while we're preparing them so that they can do it on their own. Like they love being with us. They feel proud to be able to help. We love seeing their joy and their pride when they learn something new, when they get to be a helper. Like isn't this how a family works? When Jesus' followers follow, everything works. The family functions. Everyone wins. All right, I'm gonna continue the story. But before I read the next section, I need to show you a couple Greek words because I'm gonna use them as we read the text. And just forgive me, um, I've told you this before, but if you didn't know, English, y'all, it's just the worst language. (laughs) Like in English, there's only one word that I'm able to use to describe my love for both the Astros and my wife. (laughs) And y'all, those better be different loves, right? All right, so in what I'm about to read, we find two words for love. We find the word agape and phileo in Greek. Everybody say it, agape, phileo. So you're probably familiar with agape. It's best described as God's love for us. That's like love, love, right? Love that's most fully defined not by a feeling, but by the work that Christ did on the cross. For God so loved the world, agape. 
I've shared this with you before, but there's a theologian named William Vanstone. He says that humans are very familiar with love, with real love, and what he calls fake love. He says in fake love, what we're doing is we're using the other person to actually fulfill our happiness. And he says we might not even be aware of it. But when we do that, our love is conditional. It holds back. It's not vulnerable. Like we give only as long as the person is affirming us and meeting our needs. This is why our relationships are always such a mess, right? Because we get caught up in this kind of love. But he goes on to say this. He says, what we need is for someone who doesn't need us to truly love us anyway. What we need is someone who will love us just for our own sake. If we received that kind of love that would so assure us of our value, it would so fill us up that maybe we could start to give love like that to others. He goes on to ask, he says, why did God create us and later save us at the greatest cost to himself when he doesn't need us? It's because he loves us. He truly loves us. This definition of real love, that describes God's love for you. Do you know that? Like that describes God's love for you. Radical, unconditional, vulnerable, sacrificial. Okay, that's agape. But you know the word phileo too. Phileo is brotherly love. It's where we get the name Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. Phileo love is affection, it's a commitment, it is real love, but it's a lesser love than the sacrificial love of God for us. Does that make sense? All right, so now I want you to hear how these words are used. This is verse 15. Some of you have heard this before, but you need to hear it again because it's profound, and sometimes when we go through this, we actually miss the point. So listen, verse 15. Uh, When they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, Agapas, do you love me more than these? He replied, yes, Lord, you know I phileo. I love you. Jesus told him, feed my lambs. Jesus said a second time, Simon, son of John, Agapas, do you love me? He replied, yes, Lord, you know phileo. I love you. Jesus told him, shepherd my sheep. Then Jesus said a third time, Simon, son of John, phileo, do you love me? Peter was distressed that Jesus asked him a third time, phileo. And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo. I love you. So Jesus replied, feed my sheep. Y'all listen, this is like one of the sweetest, most intimate, most merciful and gracious encounters between God and humans in all of scripture. I think there are so many things happening here. The first thing, Jesus asks three times, three times, why? Is he berating Peter? No, he's fully reinstating Peter, right? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he was arrested, as Jesus is being beaten and crucified, Peter denied even knowing him three times. And the gospels tell us that he did it while he was warming himself by a fire. Now here we are on a beach with the smell of a fire of burning coals in the background, having just shared a meal with his disciples, breaking bread with them. Jesus then gives him the opportunity to affirm his love three times. Like, does Jesus need Peter to do this before he will use him? 
does Peter have to do this work in order to receive forgiveness and restoration? Like, absolutely not. That's an act of grace. This scene, it's 100% for Peter. And in order to make it effective for Peter, Jesus takes him right back to that dark night, to the events, the smells. But this time he does it by the light of the rising sun. This is beautiful. That's the obvious part, but there's more. Jesus twice asks Peter if he agapes him. Peter, do you love me with unconditional sacrificial love? And twice, Peter replies with a word for a lesser love, phileo. Real love, but a lesser love, brotherly love. And listen, we might be tempted to think that Peter, yet again, isn't measuring up. Like, here we go, pendulum Pete, right? He gets close, but swings right by. I don't think so. I don't think that's what's going on. You see, Jesus starts by asking, he says, do you love me more than these? And that's actually left grammatically uncertain. Like, we don't know if what he means is, do you love me more than you love the others? Do you love me more than you love your brothers, the disciples? But it could also be, do you love me more than they love me? There's a third option, and this one sounds funny at first, but it could also be, do you love me more than you love these fish? (laughs) It sounds funny, but listen. What is he asking him? Do you love me with a sacrificial love that puts me before your brothers? Do you love me with a sacrificial love that puts me before your job? That puts me even before your income? Like when Jesus found them that morning, they had clearly chosen their work and each other over his commission to go out in the world as his witnesses. So it's a fair question to ask. And Peter, to his credit gives an honest answer, twice. Like, I love you, Jesus, but I'm not sure that I can honestly say that I love you the same way you love me. Like, you died for me. That's love, love. But here I am, swinging on the pendulum. I run to you one moment, and then the next minute, I don't even know what to do when I get to you. Like, I do love you, Jesus, but my love for you just doesn't measure up. Does that feel familiar to you? (laughs) Me too. So the third time, Jesus doesn't ask Peter for agape love. He condescends, and that's not meant in a negative way. He goes down to meet Peter exactly where he is, and he says, do you phileo me? Like it's beautiful and terrible all at the same time. Like he's saying, okay, you can't agape. You can't honestly say you agape me, then I'm not gonna make you. I'll meet you right where you are. We'll get you to agape soon enough. So Jesus asked, do you phileo me? That's why John says that Peter was distressed when Jesus asked the third time because he knew exactly what Jesus was doing. Jesus was meeting him right where he was and it pained Peter that he didn't measure up again. At least that's what Peter thought. But y'all, here's the truth. Like Jesus knows that none of us measure up. Not one of us. None of us are capable of that real agape love outside of God's love for us. 
So Jesus takes Peter's phileo love and he doesn't only accept it, he uses it, he puts it to work. Like Jesus commissioned all of his disciples to go and be his witnesses. But it's only Peter that he gives a more specific task. He says, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep, take care of my people. Jesus is the great shepherd And in this scene, he's passing off his title and his role to a former denier. He promotes Pendulum Pete to a position to pastor Jesus' church, to care and provide for God's children. Like to a man who can't honestly say he loves Jesus with that same sacrificial love that God has for him, Jesus gives him the keys to the kingdom anyway. You see what Jesus knew is that one day Peter will agape me and my church and the whole world is gonna know about it. And Jesus was right, Peter did. He loved and pastored Jesus's church until the day that he put love, love, agape love on display when Peter was crucified on his own cross. And Jesus said to Peter, will you follow me? all the way to the cross and the testimony of the whole of his life, Peter said yes. Now this is Peter's story and every time I read it, it moves me deep in my bones. It moves me because in so many ways, like it's our story, right? It's my story. Like I am so Peter. (laughs) Like I can be wildly swinging on a pendulum Like back and forth, I am drawn to Jesus. I am attracted to Jesus. I am in awe of Jesus, but still I'll turn away. Like I love him. I do, but not always like I should. My love for him is not always unconditional. It's not always radical. It's not always vulnerable. It's not always sacrificial. Yet even still, I am loved radically, unconditionally and sacrificially, and so are you. And the incredible thing is that Jesus gives us the opportunity to respond to that love that he has for us by inviting us into something beautiful. Like asking each of us, do you agape me? And the amazing thing is that if you can simply answer, yes, Jesus, you know I phileo you. If you can at least do that, If all you have to offer is phileo love right now in return for agape love, if your tiny little heart is just getting a little bit bigger, but it's not all the way there yet, Jesus is still ready to breathe his empowering spirit into you because he's got work for you to do. You're here today. Do you know that you are loved? Do you know how deeply you are loved? not because of what you've done, but because Jesus has chosen to love you for who you are. Do you know that? If you do know that, then can you start to offer that kind of love in return? Do you feel his spirit living and moving in you? If you do, then are you ready to get to work? If so, the question then 
is now how will we do that work? Right? We work with our kids to teach them how to do it when we're not there. If we're ready, then how are we going to do that work? And I'm going to end with this because it's really important. If we're going to do his work, we better do it his way. This is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And you got to keep going every time you read that verse. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And then in John 20 verse 21, Jesus said, Peace, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. Y'all, God so loves a world that does not love him in return. Like the world does not measure up. For many, I'm not just talking about phileo in place of agape, I'm talking about no love. For some, even hatred. That is the world into which God sent his only son. That is the world Jesus came to save. That is the same world that we are now sent into by him. And what did Jesus do when Peter's love didn't quite measure up? He condescended. Again, not in a negative sense. He went down to meet Peter where he was. Jesus loved Peter just as he found him, but as you've heard it said, he loved him too much to leave him there. So he offers forgiveness and mercy and grace. He restores his relationship with Peter and empowers him so that they can do the work together. He empowers Peter to carry it on, to participate in Jesus' mission to turn the world upside down. So when the world's love for God doesn't measure up, y'all, we cannot stand in judgment of them. That's not our job. We must identify with them instead because our love doesn't always measure up either. The world is often wrong about a lot of things. You know what? I've been wrong about a lot of things. Maybe they've bought into lifestyles and philosophies that are not God's plan or God's design. Lifestyles and philosophies that we know can lead to destruction of the whole person, body, spirit, and soul. But just because I've accepted the truth doesn't mean that I can stand in condemnation of them. I'm called to remember what it was like to be them. (laughs) And then to be compelled and commissioned to love them right where they are. Even our enemies is what Jesus says. Our job is to stand beside them, to fight for them, to love them where they are, no matter where they are, but to love them too much to leave them there. And to do that, we have to tell them the truth. And y'all, that's risky because they might hate us for it. Jesus said they would. But then he went on to say, but it's not you they hate, it's, it's me. Jesus said it's him that they hate. So don't take it personal. Jesus forgave those who crucified him. He never returned hate for hate. So we can't either. So we are called and compelled and commissioned to go into the world, to love the world enough to tell them the truth. But to then demonstrate that truth by offering forgiveness and by serving them sacrificially. Not either or both and. Don't just tell them about the love of Jesus. Show them what it looks like in action. Y'all, over the centuries, that is exactly what Jesus' disciples did in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and throughout Rome and to the ends of the earth. That's the legacy that we've inherited. 
Through them, Jesus turned the world upside down. Everything changed. The world changed. Jesus wants to continue that work through you. Through us. And he's ready to take you on. Like today. Wherever you are. Just as you are. Can you just start by accepting the truth that you are so loved, not because of what you've done, but because he has chosen to love you for who you are. Amen? Let's pray. The story always gets me. Um, And God, you know why, because you know the depths of my heart. And you love me the same. So that's our simple prayer this morning, is that you would just remind everybody in this room of that simple truth. And then guide our next steps. We pray all this in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.